I think a lot of you are probably familiar with the name Corey Tenboom. Corey rose to international fame after her book, The Hiding Place, where she told these harrowing tales of how her family hid many Jews in this secret room in their house during World War II. Corey became part of the Dutch resistance, even like smuggling Jews out to safety. But in 1944, a Dutch informant turned them in. She and her sister were sent to a concentration camp. By the end of that year, due to the harsh conditions, her sister Betsy died. But then much to her surprise, Corey was then released a week later, free to go, returned home. Only later she learned that she was only released because of a clerical error and that one week after her release, all the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. After the war, Corey would write and speak around the world for the next 40 years telling the message of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ as she and her family were strong Christians in the Dutch Reformed Church. So just two years after the war, 1947, she returned to Germany to share the good news of Christ at a church in Munich. The land and soul of Germany had been hollowed out, and she believed they needed to hear the message of God's forgiveness the most. Now, after sharing, very few people responded to her testimony, what she was sharing, but one man came forward and Carrie, uh, and it's instantly, or Corey rather, instantly recognized him as being one of the guards at her concentration camp. And this is a true story. So all the feelings of fear and anger and resentment rushed upon her, and she later went on to write of this encounter, read you an extended quote. She, she writes this quote. He came up to me as the church was emptying, saying, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to, to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. End quote. And Corey's life story proves and provides one of the most powerful testimonies of true forgiveness in our time. She displayed a level and a type of forgiveness that most people in the world simply do not understand. Like, how could you forgive someone who's wronged you that much? Like, they, they don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve justice, that you should make them pay. They should get what they deserve. So how can someone like Corey forgive so deeply and so wholly? There's only one way, as she testified elsewhere, one source of forgiveness this deep. She was able to forgive so completely because she had received the same complete forgiveness from her Savior, Christ Jesus. Forgiveness like this is actually unique and foundational to biblical Christianity. Eastern religions know very little of forgiveness. They emphasize karma. You get what you deserve. 
Even Western religions like rabbinical Judaism and Islam, they know a little of forgiveness, but it doesn't run that deep. Retribution and justice get the last word. But biblical Christianity alone teaches that salvation is not by our our works or merit or effort, but by faith in Christ, his finished work, who died to save us. And so it starts with this understanding that we are not good enough or righteous enough, and we can't be, to stand before a perfectly holy God. We are all sinners. We've all done wrong. And by our own works, we can never repay him. But in mercy, that God sent his son Christ to die in our place, being a substitute sacrifice to just bear the full weight of our guilt. And so now it's only by faith in him alone that God can and will grant us pardon. That in Christ, all of our sins are wiped away and forgiven forever. There's no comparable or deeper level of forgiveness. And that's what compels us as Christians to forgive others of whatever wrongs they might commit against us. We are the most forgiven people in the world, and so we're compelled to be the most forgiving people in the world. And that right there is called perspective, and it changes your whole outlook on life. You're going to find all lifelong people will offend you and hurt you and sin against you. Can't be avoided. Sometimes it's, it's on us too. But you can choose to go through life bitter, angry, resentful, vengeful. But if you keep just in the front of your mind all the ways you have sinned against God, and yet in his great mercy he forgave you of all of it, how can you not release others from their debt and just forgive? Leave it to God. That's the only way you get to be released from bitterness and can enjoy the peace we're made to have in Christ. It is this perspective that I want us to consider more this morning that we as Christians might live in light of God's boundless forgiveness daily. Where is this coming from? Well, we're going through Matthew on Sunday mornings, and just last week we came up on one of the hardest sayings of Jesus, the unpardonable sin. I'll read it again. It's from Matthew 12, 31, 32. It's where Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. I'm not going to rehash this now. We spent a whole hour last week doing that. But suffice it to say, Jesus is speaking of those who have received the the crystal clear testimony of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. They have then rejected that testimony in, in bitter hatred. And beyond that, slandered it as evil or satanic. And Christ is saying those who have reached that level of hardness of heart will never find God's forgiveness. Now, we know it's a challenging passage, and so sometimes we need to devote ourselves to kind of a technical study to try and rightly divide the Word of God. We did that last week. That being said, I mentioned just real quick in brief in passing last week that this verse is actually one of, secretly, the most encouraging passages in the whole Bible. How is that? Well, we tend to focus all of our attention on the negative statement, which Jesus said is kind of the hot-button issue, the unpardonable sin— It's all our focus, but then we quickly kind of pass over the positive statement he made, 
It flies right past us. I don't think we should take this for granted, though, because Jesus starts by saying, verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Just consider that. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. That any who repent of any sin can be forgiven. Those fully hardened in heart will never find the place of repentance, true, but that doesn't affect God's promise that any who repent and turn to the Lord can and will be forgiven of any sin. Like, wait, which sins? How many sins? All of them. What do you have to contribute? Nothing. Jesus did the work entirely on our behalf. That is good news. It's, it's revolutionary news. No religion teaches anything like this. This is God's grace and mercy. They're seen most in the, the, the breadth and the depth of his forgiveness. And so I, I didn't want us to just rush right over this. I figured this would be a fitting subject for our devotional time in the Word this morning. Today's a little different in that we only have time for like a diet sermon, maybe 30, 35 minutes. It's because we're devoting a lot of time to church life this morning, and that's a good thing, from baptism to new members to the Lord's Supper and so on. But just springing off of what Jesus said about forgiveness in this passage, we have just enough time to more fully appreciate the breadth and the depth of God's forgiveness, that our hearts might be kindled afresh by the mercy of God. And so that's our goal, simply this, to more fully appreciate the breadth and depth of God's forgiveness that our hearts might be kindled afresh by the mercy of God. Just beholding how much God has forgiven us equips us with the perspective we need for right worship, right living, and our testimony. So let's just do this. First, let's talk about the breadth of God's forgiveness. The breadth of God's forgiveness. Just asking, you know, how far does God's forgiveness go? How wide is it? What can be forgiven? I know that most, if not all of you in here, you already know the answer intellectually. It's just all of them. But like I said, the goal is not necessarily to teach you something new this morning, but to stir up your hearts to appreciate what you might take for granted, that any sin can be forgiven. Start thinking about back to your life or the life of others. Any sin can be forgiven. That's, that's not a little deal. That's not a small deal. There's so many examples showing how big God's net of forgiveness is in Scripture. But for just the short time we have, let's just highlight the big three. Right? David, Peter, Paul. David. Starting off with David, king of Israel. He's a man of great faith. We know that. He had a true heart for God. He did. But once upon a time, once in his life, he was for a while hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He had it all but wanted more. So when he saw Bathsheba and lusted after her, though he was married, she was married, and though her husband was off at war, still he took her for himself. Already this was a, a vile abuse of power. But then when she became pregnant, what did he do? Just come clean? Repent? No. He doubled down and ensured that her husband Uriah would be killed in battle so that he could then quickly marry her and cover up his adultery. In a storyline, right out of dateline, it, it worked. He seemed to get away with it. But God knew, and before God, David was guilty. 
of adultery, sexual morality, essentially murder. I mean, can someone responsible for such injustice actually be forgiven? Well, David was finally confronted by the prophet Nathan. This is all recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Of course, we're just summarizing this morning, but 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And the good news is that when rebuked, David genuinely broke, humbled himself before God. His repentance was earnest as he confessed, 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And he knew he deserved only punishment. The Old Testament law, which the king was supposed to uphold, declared the death penalty for what he did. Amazingly, though, while there would be some temporal consequences for his crimes, when it came to his standing before God, he was forgiven, fully forgiven, as Nathan then said to him, speaking for the Lord. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. That is, it's an extreme level of forgiveness when you think about it. If someone sinned against you that greatly and, and so wronged you or your family, would you be that quick to forgive them entirely? There are many religions say the extremes of murder and sexual morality are beyond forgiveness. They, they can't be forgiven. But we need to remember that the God of the Bible, his mercy is as vast as the ocean. I hope you don't take this for granted, especially since Jesus taught that anger is akin to murder in the heart and lust is akin to adultery in the heart. Are we that much better than David? Not in the heart, but thankfully God can forgive the full breadth of all of our sin. Now, how about Peter? Peter, like David, was also a man after God's heart, chief disciple of the Lord, No one was closer to the Lord Jesus while on earth, but you know Peter was guilty of such a great fall. I mean, here is Peter boasting he would follow the Lord to death. He would never deny him, but that proved to be an empty boast. You recall his betrayal recorded in the Gospels. Jesus is under trial. Peter's out with the crowds waiting to see what will happen. That's when others start to recognize him as having been with Jesus. He starts taking some heat for the sake of the Lord. So how did he respond? With bold faith, ready to stand up for the Lord? Witness? Well, not quite. Peter, the rock, turned into sand. He denied the Lord vehemently three times, and his denial culminated with this. This is Mark 14, verse 71. It says, but he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know this man you are talking about. This doesn't mean he was using swear words. It means he was swearing as if he was under oath. word for uh, curse in Greek is anathematizo. We get the word anathema from. So he's effectively saying, let me be damned if I'm lying. I don't know this man. That's pretty stunning. Peter's sin was not outwardly as egregious as David, as David's, but it feels worse because he was so much closer to the Lord. And beheld his glory. Having gone this far, I mean, that's, that's too far, right? You'd think Peter's done for. How could the Lord ever take him back after this, after a fall and such denial? It's not worse than Judas, but it's still a, quite a betrayal. I mean, have you ever had a moment of weakness or denial where you took the easy way out to avoid taking heat 
for Jesus? Have you denied him, at least by a mission, and then felt the ensuing guilt? That's not good. But the good news is that even denying Jesus can be forgiven. Peter himself was fully forgiven and fully restored. This is captured in John chapter 21, where just as Peter denied the Lord three times, the Lord was sure to restore him three times. Jesus affirms him, and three times he elicits Peter's profession of faith and love in him. And three times he tells him to tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep. But the Lord wanted Peter to know and and feel that he had been fully pardoned. Not because he deserved it. He didn't. That's why we call it grace. But he was fully pardoned and, and beyond that, still needed for the Lord's service, still to be used for the Lord's purposes. If denying the Lord can be forgiven, what can't? But still, what about those who, they don't just deny him, they, they hate the Lord. They slander, they blaspheme his name. That seems worse. It is. And that was once the Apostle Paul, back when he was known as Saul. We realize Saul was a Pharisee. We're learning about the Pharisees in Matthew, like some of these Pharisees are seemingly committing the blasphemy against the Spirit. Paul was a Pharisee. He shared their vehement hatred for Jesus, slandering him as a false Messiah. And so as Christianity took off, Saul took out his rage on them. There's no evidence that he personally killed Christians, but he certainly contributed to their death. Because Paul later confessed, he writes this in in Acts, or it's recorded. Acts 22.4, Paul reveals how in the past, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Again, later he's telling his testimony, Acts 26, verse 10. He says, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And during World War II, some Nazis were known as Jew hunters. They would go around finding Jews in hiding and have them put to death. And Paul was a Christian hunter. He would find these traitorous Jews who are now following Christ. He would bind them bring them before the Sanhedrin, and sometimes that meant their death. He had this utter contempt for Christ. And so, can someone like this be forgiven? That, that's, that seems too far. Can a Nazi be forgiven? Can, can a terrorist, jihadist be forgiven? Someone who hates Christ and his people so much. But even in, back in Matthew 12 where this started, did not Jesus say, all sin? And all blasphemy shall be forgiven, even against the Son of Man. And beyond forgiveness, God can transform sinners and then put them into his service for his purposes in amazing ways. And that is what he did with Saul. His conversion is recorded in Acts 9, where God both blinded him and opened his eyes at the same time. He came to faith in Christ. All of his sins were washed away, all of them. And then the Lord immediately pressed him into service. Paul recounts this later in Acts 26, how after his conversion, the Lord sent him or would send him to the Gentiles, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive 
forgiveness of sins. Paul later testified of the majesty of God's pardon. He says this about himself, 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Verse 15, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And because of his intense hatred for Jesus, Paul viewed himself as the chief of sinners. But the good news is even the chief of sinners can be forgiven. So you already see all in all that God's net of forgiveness is cast far and wide. And all the ways we can sin, he can pardon. Time doesn't afford us to tell of Rahab the harlot or the woman caught in adultery in John 8 or Matthew the tax collector, the prodigal son. Your name could be added here, as could mine. But we need to appreciate the fact that we sing often that God's grace is, it actually is greater than all of our sin. I hope your heart is moved to thanksgiving by what this same Paul said elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if it stops right there, Christianity would be just like any other religion. But it's not, as he goes on to speak of God's grace. Verse 11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So we should give great thanks that the breadth of God's forgiveness is far wider than all of our sins. Now, we also want to appreciate the depth of God's forgiveness. Let's do that now. Number two, the depth of God's forgiveness. Spent some time surveying just briefly how how wide it goes. Now, how, how deep does it go? Does he actually forgive us of all of our sin debt down to the last cent? Or does he leave a little bit for us to pay off? The Catholic doctrine of purgatory teaches that although someone is initially justified by the sacrament of baptism, the stain of sin still must be purged from their soul. That happens as the merits of Christ and Mary and the saints are applied to someone's soul through works, through sacraments, Most people don't finish purging their soul in this life, and so you'll go to purgatory to finish that, which might take you thousands of years. And don't worry, you can always buy an indulgence to shorten the time. Now, of course, you're not going to find a shred of this in the Bible. Scripture teaches that in Christ, we're not given a partial pardon, but rather a full pardon, as if we're not guilty. And Jesus did not accomplish for us a partial atonement, We've got to do something to make up the rest. It's just a perfect, complete, full atonement. And this is why on the cross, Jesus did not say, it is started. He said, it is finished. Our sin debt was paid by him in full. We have to repeat the cherished verse from last week of how God forgave us. Colossians 2.14, it says, he canceled out 
their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There, there it lives. There it's paid for. This picture is this certificate of debt, like a handwritten record of all of our transgressions. Our name is signed. But it, it is as if Christ comes along and signs his name, crosses ours out, writes paid in full with his own blood. That is good news. Countless other verses show that you can't actually <clears throat> plumb the depth of God's forgiveness. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 1.18, where God says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Or Micah 7, 18, 19. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And this is why we can pray in confidence, just like David did after his mighty sin. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. What's greater, your transgressions or the greatness of his compassion? His is greater. He can blot them all out. And Christ, he has. You might recall the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18. It starts with the slave who is in debt 10,000 talents to the king. Now, one talent is 15 years wages. So 10,000 talents, it's multiple lifetimes of debt that he is in. It doesn't tell us how he got into this debt. He burned down the castle. We don't know. Like, but it's obviously impossible for him to repay. And being broken, all he could do is just beg for mercy. He can't do anything but beg. And he does. The king, it says, is moved to compassion and decides just to let him go. He, he releases him of the entire debt. Now, you know, after that, the slave goes and finds a fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii, which is like chump change in comparison. And he forces him to pay back to the full. And when he can't, he throws him in debtor's jail until he works it off. There's no mercy. And can there be greater ingratitude? Now, when the king heard this, he was outraged, and he rebuked that slave, telling him, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And, you know, this is the punchline of the parable where Christ is communicating to us, to his disciples, that we, we must be a forgiving people. How can we not release others from their debt when God has forgiven us so much. But you know, the only reason the punchline lands so hard is because the slave was himself first forgiven of this near infinite debt. That's sometimes lost on us, but again, that's perspective. That he was forgiven of 10,000 talents. Did the king try and recoup some of that debt? He said, like, I'll forgive you 5,000. Well, let's make a work plan for the other 5,000. No, he just, he freely released him from the entire debt, no purgatory required. And Jesus is teaching us by analogy that, that that is what God's forgiveness is like. 
That's how deep it goes. You can't reach the bottom of his mercy. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Okay, our time is short. This devotional is nearly over. We've been able to behold some of the, the breadth, the depth of God's forgiveness. Still, we, we can't see the horizon. It's just too far-reaching. But before we finish, to make sure these, these truths, these little reminders land in our hearts, I want to very quickly add three more little points here to, to help this land. I want to include, number three, the basis of God's forgiveness. The basis. There might be a few of you who are you know, seeing this, this level of God's forgiveness. It's, it's new to you. And at first blush, it can actually seem wrong. Like David, for example, he perpetrated great evil. So how can God just sweep that under the rug? Why does he get to go free? That actually seems unjust. How can God just let so many injustices go? It kind of seems wrong. And there's a tension between the love and the justice of God. I think it's captured best in God's self-declaration of his character, Exodus 34, 7, where God says that he keeps loving kindness for thousands He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Like, wait a second, how can both be true? It seems like an either or. Either you're going to forgive or you're going to punish. Like, which one is it? And if it's true that by no means he'll leave the guilty unpunished, how can he ever then forgive? The answer, though, to this tension comes in the cross of Christ where it has been said that's where the love and the justice of God kissed. It's true that God, he can't simply pardon sin. He can't let sin go. He's he's just. He's perfectly just. Justice demands payment. The good news is that this God accepts substitutes. In fact, in, in his love, he went so far as to provide the only perfect, sufficient substitute for all sinners in his son Christ. Again, it was on the cross that Jesus is dying in our place as God placed on him all the guilt of all of our sin. And he suffered the full justice, the wrath of God in our place that we would never have to drink that cup. And this is why Isaiah 53, 6 says, We like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Speaking of that suffering servant. It was on the cross that God's perfect justice was satisfied. And that's how now we are able to justly receive his perfect mercy if we know this Christ. But may we never forget the basis of our forgiveness, which is the perfect blood of the lamb. Now let's add quickly number four, the catalyst of God's forgiveness. We have to add this, like how how do you receive this forgiveness? Because clearly not all people do. Some are lost. They, they perish. They enter judgment. So what's the difference? Why was King David forgiven and not King Saul? You could totally argue King's, King David's sin seemed like way worse than Saul's. But the answer is simple and that the catalyst is repentance. Repentance is the necessary human response God requires for sin. It's the means he has chosen by which his, his waters wash over us to cleanse us, that you must repent. This involves seeing your sin for what it is. It's poison. It's killing you. And so you turn on it. You turn away from it. You ask God for mercy as you walk the other way. 
It should be stated that every single example of biblical forgiveness comes after repentance. David repented. Peter repented. Paul repented. Even 120,000 pagan heathen Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and were forgiven. The prodigal son from Luke 15 gives us this special picture of the Lord's restoration and forgiveness. We see the prodigal, or we see the father run to the prodigal to receive him back, restore him in full fellowship. All of his wrongs and injustices are wiped away. But remember, that does not happen until after the prodigal came to his senses, repented, and went back to the father's house. That happens first. You too must repent to receive God's pardon. This also David expressed in his repentance, Psalm 32, verse 5. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This repentance is joined at the hip with faith as you turn away from your sins, and then you must turn to the only Savior, Christ, then you have the promise that God will hear, cleanse, forgive. And Christ alone is forgiveness found, and with him, all the results. And so we can finish with number five, a last quick little point. The results of God's forgiveness. When you come to Christ by repentance and faith, you get to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Like that includes peace with God, everlasting joy. If someone came up to you today and and they said they had just paid off your mortgage, all your student loans, your credit card debt, your car loans, and it all checked out as legit, like it really happened, I think you'd be pretty happy. Just feeling that the load, the crushing load of debt lift off your shoulders, I, I think you'd be elated. And so it is with God times a million. Again, we have to pick on David one more time. He knew the crushing weight of his sin and the guilt, it consumed him. But then he also knew the joy of the Lord that came back with repentance and forgiveness. And so he writes again, Psalm 51, 8, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And so I too hope you rejoice, you enjoy the joy of the Lord that comes with this forgiveness. But as a final word, I want to return to that result of perspective that we gain from considering the Lord's forgiveness. Again, in a world of sin, we will be on the receiving end of so much sin and injustice and wrong and hurt. But yet we are told, we're even commanded as Christians, we must forgive. People that sin against us, we must forgive. This has made a Christian distinctive unlike any other religion. So, for example, Ephesians 4.32 commands us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How can we do this? It's only by this perspective we can actually do this. Well, first, we're meant to be humbled by the fact that we sin sometimes just as much against others. Sometimes we're the ones doing the hurting. That should humble us, lead us to repent and seek forgiveness. But with that in mind, we're also meant to be humbled by the fact that though our sin reaches to the heavens, that God in his mercy forgave us of it all in Christ. However others have wronged us, it's, it's a raindrop compared to the ocean of wrong we have against God. But he forgave it all. 
It's only this perspective that enables us to forgive others. As the full verse reads, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We're not meant to live in the past and rehearse all of our guilt and shame all the time. But it is good that we not lose our sin debt entirely, not lose sight of it. Even though it's paid in full, we kind of need to keep it in mind just to remember, for the sake of perspective, how much we've been forgiven. That's the only way we can muster up the mercy so as to pardon others. But really, like, like Corey Tenboom found, we're not really mustering it up. It's being impacted by the magnitude of God's mercy. He supplies the mercy we need to show grace to others. So I pray this brief little devotion on God's forgiveness this morning has stirred up your hearts, just reminding you, if you know Christ, the, the love of God you've received. It's, I think it's seen most in just the breadth, the depth of forgiveness we found. I, I pray that love fills up your hearts. They overflow and just love returned for God, for others. In the end, may we live just as Jesus said of this woman broken in adultery in Luke 7, that those who are forgiven of little love little. Those who are forgiven of much love much. I pray that's what makes us the most loving people in the world as well. Let's make that our prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you in, in thanksgiving and joy in the fruit of the salvation we've received in Christ and the forgiveness, the pardon. We're justified by faith in Christ. That means we're declared not guilty. We're pardoned as if we had never sinned. This is the, the grace and the gift we gain in him, all because he did the work. We confess, Lord, you are a perfectly just God. You are fair, you're holy, you're righteous. And you must judge sin. We are so very grateful you accept substitutes, even going so far as to provide the only one available, the only one who could do this work, the God-man Christ, who could stand in our place as a man, yet drink the full cup of wrath as God and put away our sin forever. Thank you for the glory of the cross and what it has done for us, enabling us to truly be pardoned, not of a little or half, but of all of our debt forever in him. I pray we do live in the joy of this forgiveness. The, the guilt and shame, they're, they're gone. Even as we still sin, humble us that we live in daily faith, daily repentance, and give us perspective, but we never lose sight of the joy and that the blessing we have in Christ. Truly, though, as a church body, we will even sin against one another. Divisions can arise, but I pray this, this boundless forgiveness leads us to forgive, to pardon, to, to bless one another. Be with us, unify us in this spirit that we can truly show the, the world your glory, your love, and the depth of your forgiveness as a redeemed people. Bless us as we bless your name for what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.